Well, like any job, pastors get the odd bit of feedback. And I've been asked recently a couple of times, did I realise Christmas was coming? (laughs) And my reply has been, but I haven't finished James yet. And in light of that critique, and honouring those of you who took the time and the took the prayerful opportunity to give that feedback to me. I've got a wee Christmas story for you before I get back to James. The story is told of a wealthy man who with his young son shared a passion for collecting art. Together the widowed man and his son travelled the world adding the finest art treasures to their collection. Priceless works by Picasso, Monet and many others adorned the walls of their house. The son became an experienced art collector and his father beamed with pride as they dealt with collectors around the world. Then war engulfed their nation and the young man left to serve his country. But after only a few weeks his father received a telegram stating that his son was missing in action. The art collector waited anxiously, fearing that he would never see his son again. Within days his fears were confirmed. The son had died while rushing a fellow soldier to a medic. Distraught, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holidays with anguish and sadness. On Christmas morning, a knock at the door awakened him. As he opened the door, he was greeted by a soldier holding a large package. He said, I was a friend of your son. I was the one that he was rescuing when he died. May I come in? I have something for you. As they talked, the soldier told how the son had talked of his and his father's love of art. I am an artist, said the soldier, and I want to give you this. The old man unwrapped the package. It was a portrait of his son. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier, promising to hang the picture above the mantelpiece. After the soldier departed, the old man set about his task, hanging the painting above the fireplace, pushing aside thousands of dollars worth of high-end art to do so. Then he sat in his chair and he spent Christmas gazing at the gift that he had been given. During the weeks that followed, the old man learned that his son had rescued dozens of wounded soldiers before a bullet stilled his heart. As he heard these stories of his son's bravery, Fatherly pride began to ease his grief. The painting of his son became his most prized and treasured possession. He told his neighbours it was the greatest gift that he'd ever received. Well, the next spring, the old man became ill and he passed away. The art world waited in anticipation knowing that his paintings would be sold at auction. According to his will, 
All the artworks would be auctioned on Christmas Day, the day he had received his greatest gift. Well, Christmas soon arrived, and the art collectors from all around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings. But the auction began with a painting that wasn't on the auction list, the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid. The room was silent. Time passed. No one spoke, and finally someone at the back of the room shouted, Who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's get on to the good stuff. And voices echoed in agreement. No, we have to sell this one first, the auctioneer replied. Now who will take the son? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke. Will you take $10? It's all I have. I knew the boy, so I'd like to have it. And the auctioneer said, I have a bid for $10. Will anyone go higher? After more silence, the auctioneer said, go in once, go in twice, gone. The gavel fell. Cheers filled the room and someone exclaimed, oh thank goodness, now we can bid on the treasures. And then the auctioneer looked at the audience and said, ladies and gentlemen, the auction is now over. Stunned disbelief filled the room. What do you mean it's over? Someone asked. What about all these paintings? There are millions of dollars worth of paintings here. And the auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets it all. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets it all. I love that story. It's about the fifth time I've used it in the last ten years. So I obviously like it. Although I wonder what our friend James would say to those art collectors. See, in chapter 4, that I talked about a couple of weeks ago, he had a go at the merchant class who presumed that they could go to another town and they could do business and everything would go well and they'd make pots of money. In chapter 2, he had a crack at the church people falling over themselves to welcome the rich visitor while ignoring the poor one. Chapter 1, he had a general blast at rich people and the pointlessness of accumulating wealth, which I guess sums up, you can't take it with you. He was concerned about the ethics and the values of rich believers. Unhappy that they might be ungenerously hoarding their wealth, ripping off their staff and their slaves and living high while those around them were struggling to survive. I think the art dealers would have got a blast too for valuing mere stuff over people and feelings. Well, today he has another go at another group of wealthy people in chapter 5. Listen to this. And now, you rich people, listen to me. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted away and your clothes have been eaten by moths. 
Your gold and silver are covered with rust, and this rust will be a witness against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have piled up riches in these last days. You have not paid any wages to those who work in your fields. Listen to their complaints. The cries of those who gather in your crops have reached the ears of God, the Lord Almighty. Your life here on earth has been full of luxury and pleasure. You've made yourselves fat for the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent people, and they do not resist you. Merry Christmas, everyone. taken in five chapters in a few digs but now he's got to the meat of his subject have any of you seen any of those frilly frock victorian melodramas where people ponce around like this uh, great expectations downton abbey emma was one in the sequel to emma mrs richardson They're about the landed gentry whose income come, came from renting out agricultural land. They are the lords and ladies of the manor. Now to work for your living in the Victorian era, and even in a profession like medicine or law, was to be in trade, usually pronounced as if you were pinching your nose. Similarly, if you were a successful business person, you owned a shipping company or cotton factories, then you were nouveau or nouveau riche, not our kind of people. Beneath that were the servants, and they of course knew their place, and beneath that, well, it was of course the great unwashed. Let's not get too close. Well, funnily enough, it was the same in the Roman Empire. The landed gentry were at the top of the tree socially and it was nigh on impossible to break into their circles. Now this here is the Roman province of Africa, the red bit there. It comprises the best bits of today's countries of Libya and Tunisia. It runs along the Mediterranean coast. Back in the day, like James's day, that area was owned by six absentee Roman landlords, six, which would be like today, each of those six people owning Otago. And similarly back then, 40% of modern-day Italy was owned by 7% of the population. And land tended to aggregate. So if a Midland farmer got into a bit of strife financially, and um, there was the ancient equivalent of a mortgagee sale, well, the great and the good would buy up their land for nicks and get bigger and bigger. James here is poking a stick at the real power of his age, the landowning class. We know this because he says in verse 4 up here that they have deceived those that work in the fields. He accuses them of ripping off their field hands and the harvesters who cry out and God has heard their cries. This is really strong language. Abel's blood cried out from the ground against his murdering brother Cain in Genesis 4. 
Who do the abused labourers cry out to? Well, they cry out to the Lord Almighty, or more accurately, the Lord of hosts, which is God in full-on military mode. Eugene Peterson, in his message Bible, calls the Lord of hosts God of the angel armies, like this. And James does not stop there. He goes on. They have made themselves fat. Gosh, that's a, a loaded phrase. In our speak, they've gorged themselves with no thought for the suffering of those around them. That's the core sin here, I think. Just not giving a stuff about the poor or the downtrodden. Now, verse 6 refers to the murder, murder of innocence. And there's a couple of possibilities what that might be referring to. Apparently in those days, once a slave was physically worn out, well, you gave them their freedom, but with no support. And I imagine most of those slaves died pretty quickly. The ancient writer Varro referred to slaves as equipment. Equipment. So not even considered human. What do you do with old equipment that's worn out? Well, you chuck it out. And you replace it. The other possibility of the murder of innocence is that the owners grew all this food and then exported it back to Rome because there were high prices there. Leaving the people who actually made the food to starve. Unable themselves to buy food that they had produced. Both of these possibilities of what James is referring to were realities back then. So what does all of this say to us? And as I've sat with this passage, the question that has nagged at me is, are we so very different? Are we different? Well, to an extent we are. You can do a lot of good with wealth, and the Christian community has and does. The modern institutions of hospitals, schools, social work, the organised relief <coughs> of poverty and universities, all have their roots in our spiritual forebears, responding to the needs that they saw around them. A stunning example is this 19th century English brethren businessman, a guy called George Muller. Who's heard of him? Oh, quite a few. This one faithful Christian with a very curious beard organised during his lifetime the care of 10,000 orphans. 10,000. And founded 117 schools. Extraordinary. And the work that he started continues today in and around Bristol in the UK. What a hero. What a guy. In the modern terms, there is a, a wealthy Christchurch couple that I met who gave the money that set up Living Springs over the hill. Amazing camping ground for the benefit of God's church and of school groups. Another 
wealthy Christchurch couple I have known have given a lot of money to World Vision Microfinance, which is sort of um, low or no interest loans lent out to small business people in the third world. They have given so much to this particular Asian country that there is now enough money in that country to circulate and they don't need any more. It's one couple. Oxford Terrace Baptist that I have a bit to do with is nearing completion of their social housing development, which is going to benefit, among others, refugee families. The local church and its people do an awful lot of good. However, I recall reading a few years ago that the United States, which I believe is about um, 5% of the world's population, consumes 25% of the world's resources. Now, we're probably not as wealthy as that, but when you think about it, our standard of living would be much higher than most residents of Central and South America, all of Africa, Eastern and Southeastern Europe, and the vast majority of Asia. Well, that's most of the world. We may not feel it sitting here, but we're rich. And you can look at our level of income on a world standard, our rate of home ownership, our rate of car ownership, our high rate of employment, our social welfare safety net, including ACC, that's a, it's the only place in the world that has something like that, Universal pension, universal education, universal health system all make us quite wealthy by world standards. Yet think what goes on in our world. It's estimated that in a quiet year, 10,000 Christians are martyred for their faith. This is a stunning statistic. 75% of the Christians now living live in the two-thirds world. That's the poor end of the world. And there are more Christians in China than the whole of Western Europe, most of whom are not in the official church. And many of these folk live under the threat of active persecution or potential persecution. They're never in true peace. And they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then there are an estimated 77 million refugees in the world at the moment, living in places like that. Two-thirds of whom have had to flee their homes and they're still in their country of origin. 27 million have had to flee their countries altogether. 27 million. With 5 million from the Ukraine. 6 million from Syria and 4.5 million from Venezuela, to name just a few hotspots. In New Zealand, our issues are nowhere near as raw, nowhere near that level. But last year I was in Hamilton, which is a sad place to visit, as those of you who have been there will know. But on Ulster Street, which is the road that goes into town from um, FMG Stadium where the Chiefs rugby team play their games, there used to be the strip of motels. There still is a strip of motels, 
but they're all now used as emergency housing. And it's squalid. There's piles of rubbish, broken down cars, and the buildings are crumbling because there's no longer any incentive to the owners to maintain them. And the local primary school, a few years ago, had 40% of its role leave before the year's end. As a kid showed up, was there for a bit, and then left. 40% because the family was moved on to other accommodation. James was rebuking the rich of his day for their indifference. But how do you or I stack up? Now, we were visited here by a Ukrainian guy a while, while back who's over here as a, well, on a two-year refugee visa. He's got no income because Ukraine doesn't have that kind of pension that you can take here. But he told me about the famine there in the 1930s under Stalin. Stalin took all their food from the richest, most fertile part of the Soviet Union, took all their food away from them. Maybe seven million people died. Well, if that's too remote, I was watching the other day um, a doco about the famine in India during World War II under British rule. Maybe five million people died when they could have been fed, but the government had other priorities. More recently, in 1984, we had the Ethiopian family famine, which sparked our collective consciousness because pictures like this came up. And we had Live Aid and Band-Aid and all those concerts, and we raised a lot of dough. However, at the same time all that was going on, southern part of Ethiopia was not in famine. They were growing so much food, they were exporting it. Food shortages were a weapon in their civil war. And it's a weapon in the current Ukrainian situation as Russia tries to stop the Ukraine exporting grain. If they're successful in that, then people in other places will go hungry. Sounds a lot like ancient Rome to me. Exporting food for, other, for personal gain while others starve. In world terms, we are a wealthy people in amongst a sea of pain and need. And it can seem just overwhelming. There's so much suffering. But I don't know about you, but I sort of vaguely knew that Venezuela had had government issues and economic stuff. But I didn't know it's the third worst place in the world for refugees. And there's just so many all around the world. It's easy to get blasé about the whole thing. They've even got a name for that. Disaster fatigue. Yeah, just seen it all before. I wonder what James would say to us. Have I or you subtly rejigged what it is to be a faithful follower of Jesus so that we can sleep at night? Those art dealers did not get the value of the sun. Okay, do I? Jesus, who has a preference for the poor and lowly over all others, who was himself born a peasant in an animal space full of all the yuck and smell that would have gone with that, that first Christmas. A pretty humble entrance for the divine King of Kings. But it can all just feel too big 
to know how to respond. Well, another story is told of an old man walking along a beach after a storm. And the beach was covered in starfish who were all out of the water and were dying. And as he walked along, periodically he would step down, grab a starfish and, and toss it into the sea. As he wandered along, he ran into a younger man walking the other way who said to him, Friend, I see you throwing the odd starfish back into the ocean and I wonder why there are thousands of such creatures here on this beach and most will die. Why bother? Surely it's not worth it. And the old man paused for a moment, picked up another starfish, threw it back and replied, well, it's worth it to that one. And I'm just sitting this Christmas with that thought. It's an uncomfortable thought, but a, a holy discontent. It's a good time of year to have this question because the rest of middle New Zealand are going gangbusters shopping for Christmas. From now on, I avoid Rickett and Mall if at all possible until sometime in January. It's this consumer spending orgy that we have each year. But for me, I need to find my starfish. Have you got one? Thank you for your kind attention. Musos, come back, please. Oh no, we've got we've got we've got a guest, haven't we? On the odd occasion, um, when you're searching for the right words, collection. So I've chosen this one. <laughs> 